Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, CNN host Dana Bash asked a question in the Republican presidential debate a couple weeks ago in Des Moines, Iowa. Quote, the rate of inflation is down. Prices, though, are still high, and Americans are struggling to afford food, cars, and housing. What is the single most important policy that you would implement as president to make the essentials in Americans' lives more important? Close quote. Unfortunately, she asked the question of Nikki Haley, who answered with word salad involving wasteful spending on a COVID stimulus bill that expanded welfare that's now left us with 80 million Americans on Medicaid, 42 million Americans on food stamps and concluded with the admonition, quit borrowing, cut up the credit cards. Cut up the credit cards is interesting advice for people who are having trouble affording diapers, but it's the sort of advice politicians and pundits dole out and that corporate news media present as a respectable worldview, worthy of our attention. There is another view that acknowledges that the same people who earn wages also buy groceries and pretending that we are pitted against one another is not just misinformation, but disinformation. Rakin Maboud is chief economist and managing director of policy and research at Groundwork Collaborative. They have new work on what's driving grocery prices that doesn't involve getting mad at people using food stamps. We'll hear from her today on the show. That's coming up, but first, a quick look back at some recent press. The UN says that nearly 100,000 people are dead, wounded, or missing in the Gaza Strip as a result of Israel's bombing campaign. How do you make sense of such a toll occurring in real time? And more, how do you make its justification a debatable point. Well, one thing you do is what the New York Times star columnist Thomas Friedman did, which is to imply that those dead, wounded, and missing aren't really human beings. Friedman's piece in the online Times feature The Point, which the paper describes as conversations and insights about the moment, compared the targets of U.S. bombs in the Middle East to vermin, the metaphor that propagandists have historically used to justify genocide. Sometimes I contemplate the Middle East by watching CNN, Friedman wrote. Other times I prefer Animal Planet. He went on to compare the nation of Iran to, quote, a recently discovered species of parasitoid wasp, close quote, and to ask readers, quote, is there a better description of Lebanon, Yemen, Syria, and Iraq today? They are the caterpillars. The Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps is the wasp. The Houthis, Hezbollah, Hamas, and Kataib Hezbollah are the eggs that hatch inside the host, Lebanon, Yemen, Syria, and Iraq, and eat it from the inside out, close quote. As Jim Narikas writes for FAIR.org, yes, there are, in fact, better ways to describe distinct political movements in four different Mideast nations, each with a social base and a minority or majority population of those countries, than by comparing them to parasites injected by a foreign insect. Yes, there are. Friedman's framing of Iranian allies as vermin 
naturally leads him to call for an eliminationist solution. Quote, we have no counter strategy that safely and efficiently kills the wasp without setting fire to the whole jungle, close quote. To the star columnist of the country's paper of record, Hamas is not only a parasitic wasp larva, but is also like the trapdoor spider, since they are, quote, adept at camouflaging the doors of their underground nests, so they are hard to see until they're opened, close quote. Thomas Friedman suggests that this edumacated thought experiment is just part of how smart people like him sometimes prefer to think about the complex relations between parties in the Middle East. Except, strikingly, the comparisons to arthropods are reserved for nations and groups that U.S.-made bombs are currently falling on. The United States appears in the column as an old lion Still, quote, the king of the Middle East jungle, close quote, and yes, you heard that right, but with so many scars from so many fights that other predators are no longer afraid to test us. Do we need to say this? Comparing official enemies to vermin is a hallmark of propaganda in defense of genocide. David Livingston Smith, author of a book on dehumanization, told NPR years ago, when people dehumanize others, actually conceive of them as subhuman creatures, this allows them to exclude the target of aggression from the moral community. And then all bets are off. Thus, the Nazis compared Jews to spiders and insects, and radio in Rwanda referred repeatedly to the Tutsi minority as cockroaches and snakes, and on and on. The editors at the New York Times are undoubtedly aware of this history. So if you want to ask them why, when international bodies are declaring that it's plausible that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza, they are choosing to elevate views that have historically been used to make genocide palatable, you can write to them at letters at nytimes.com. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group FAIR. If you buy groceries, you know that prices are high. And if you read the paper, you've probably heard that prices are high because of well, inflation and shocks to the supply chain and other language you understand but don't quite understand. One article told me that economists see pandemic-related spending meant to stabilize the economy as a factor, along with war-impacted supply chains and steps taken by the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates all of which may be true, but still doesn't really help me see why four sticks of butter now cost $8. Not to mention that the same piece talks matter-of-factly about upward pressure on wages, which sounds like people who need to buy butter getting paid more, but I'm pretty sure the language is telling me I'm supposed to be against it. How do we interpret corporate news media's coverage of prices. What aren't they talking about? Rakin Maboud is chief economist and managing director of policy and research at Groundwork Collaborative. She joins us now by phone. Welcome back to Counterspin, Rakin Maboud. 
Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be back. Well, I want to say the piece that I'm citing in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette isn't a bad piece. It's just what passes for media explanation of what is a truly meaningful reality. People are really having trouble buying diapers and buying food. And so to have journalists saying, well, it's because of the bloody 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 blah that you couldn't possibly understand, you know, the unclarity of it is galling to me, and it's it's politically stultifying. You know, I'm supposed to get mad at inflation, you know, per se. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's the kind of informational void that Groundwork Collaborative's work is intervening in. So let me just ask you to talk about what you find when you look into, for example, high grocery store prices right now. Yeah, this is a great question. And I love the fact that you're focusing on the experiences of people because that's how we all experience the economy. And frankly, that's how that's how the economy is made, right? Through our actions, through our demand, through our spending. And so it is really important to hone in on what's going on to people on the ground as we're thinking about these sort of big amorphous concepts like inflation. And the reality is, as you point out, Prices are sky high for people around the country, and folks are really struggling. Grocery prices, obviously, are particularly worth digging into because there's a real salience of food prices in everybody's lives, right? We all go to the grocery store on a weekly or maybe bi-weekly basis and, and buy groceries to feed ourselves, to feed our families. And, you know, my colleagues at the Groundwork Collaborative, Liz Pankati, Bharat Amrutti, and Clara Wilson, recently authored a report that really digs into what's going on with grocery prices. And what they find is that while grocery price increases have outpaced overall inflation, and families are now paying 25% more for groceries than they were prior to the pandemic, compared to 19% of overall inflation, right? So there's this gap between what folks are paying at the till and what inflation would suggest. And this is particularly hitting folks who are on the lower income and the income distribution harder. In 2022, people in the bottom quintile of the income spectrum spent 25% of their income on groceries, while those in the highest quintile spent just under 3.5%. Wow. And this is a trend that we see across the board with essentials. Because something is essential, you have to buy it. If you earn less money, a bigger proportion of your income is going to go towards those essentials. And so that means that when you see inflation and frankly, corporate profiteering, which I'll get into in a second, showing up in spaces for essential goods, it's always the people who are most vulnerable who are hit the hardest. It's wonderful that you're really focusing on groceries. And, you know, I think one thing to note, just to zoom out a little bit from from grocery prices in particular, is that an underexplored topic still, I think, in the discussions around inflation is the role of corporate profit margins. Because the fact remains that corporate profit margins have remained high and even grown, even as labor costs have stabilized, input costs, the costs of things that are used to produce goods, have come down, and supply chain snarls have started to ease. And in a different paper by two other of my colleagues, Lindsay Owens and Liz Saikati, they find that from April to September of 2023, so that's very recently, corporate profits drove 53% of inflation. When you compare that to the 40 years prior to the pandemic, profits drove just 11% of price growth. 
there are a lot of explanations out there of what's causing inflation, but I, it's very important to focus on the role of big companies using the cover of inflation to jack up prices. And they continue to do that even as their own costs are coming down. Well, and I want to say you can illustrate that point with just data, as these works from Groundwork Collaborative do. But at the same time, you also have, you know, as the kids say, receipts. In other words, earnings calls where CEOs are saying it out loud. Their situation in terms of supply chain, in terms of COVID and whatever, they're, they're using that as an opportunity to keep prices high. Yes, absolutely. So let's let's talk about another essential good, which is diapers. Mm-hmm. And I think diapers are really a good example because it sort of illustrates what's going on right now and ties together the idea of corporate profiteering, but also this idea that it's scholars Isabella Weber and Evan Wozner put out there about tacit collusion and implicit collusion. So let's unpack that. What does that all mean? So what they write about is that inflationary environment, so when prices are rising across the board, it means that companies, especially those that are in a really concentrated markets, can raise their prices precisely because they know that their competitor is going to do the exact same thing, right? So if you are one of three big companies and you know that your competitors are also going to raise prices, there's no reason for you not to raise prices. And that logic also applies in the reverse. So when costs are coming down, If you know that your competitors are going to keep their prices high, you're also going to keep your prices high, right? Which is, I think, why we're seeing, even as input costs come down, prices are staying high and people are still paying more than they should be given the the cost of input. So diapers, right? Diapers, I think, is the perfect example for this. It's a super, super concentrated market. Procter & Gamble and Kimberly-Clark control about 70% of the domestic market. And diaper prices have increased by more than 30% since 2019, from about $16, $17 to nearly $22. And so the main thing that goes into producing diapers is wood pulp. It's also the main input into toilet paper, paper towels, basically paper products that we use around the house. The wholesale wood pulp prices really skyrocketed by 87% between January 2021 and January 2023. But in 2023, like between January and December of 2023, prices declined by 25%, but diaper prices have remained high, right? So what's going on here? And to your point, the executives at Kimberly Clark and Procter & Gamble are not hiding the ball. P&G CFO said on their October 2023 earnings call that high prices were a big driver of the reason that they could expand their profit margins and that 33% of their profits in the previous quarter were driven by lower input costs. And during their July 2023 earnings call, the company predicted $800 million in windfall profits because of declining input costs. Same thing on the other side, on Kimberly Clark's side, right? Their CEO said in October that the company, quote, finally saw inflection in the cost environment, quote, end quote, And he admitted that he believes the company has, quote, a lot of opportunity to expand margins over time, despite what they're doing on the revenue side and also on the cost side. So despite large input cost declines, the CEO thinks that the company has priced appropriately and didn't anticipate any price deflation. So diapers, I think, is a really clear example of how these big corporations are exercising their corporate power in a moment where things are a little murky for consumers, right? We don't know necessarily, we don't have all the data at our fingertips or the time, frankly, to figure out 
is the box of diapers more expensive for sensible reasons or not, right? And these big companies are taking advantage of both the information asymmetry and the particular inflationary environment we're living in. And you don't have a choice. You've got to buy the diapers, you know? Like Absolutely. You can try to puzzle out why it costs more than it cost, you know, a, a year ago or six months ago, but you still have to buy them, and, and that's the thing. And I, I want to draw you out on something because I see articles. It's, it's, it's not that media are not ever saying greedflation or that they're completely ignoring the idea that corporations might be keeping prices high to profit, although it's still not shaping the dialogue in the way that you would hope. But I do see articles that put corporate profiteering in scare quotes as if it's not a real thing. It's just an accusation. And I wonder what do we call profiteering and how does it differ from capitalism doing its capitalism thing, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a question that I've gotten over the years as as we've done this work. It is not necessarily a bad thing for companies to be making a profit. You know, that's okay. Like companies exist to make a profit. What we're talking about here is really profits above and beyond what they should be making. Mm-hmm. Excess profits, windfall profits, right? And companies making these profits on the backs of consumers. Right. The example that I always go back to is just the classic sort of price gouging example, right? If you are in the middle of a hurricane or a disaster relief situation and you, you are a person who sells bottles of water or gallon jugs of water, if you jack the prices up because you know that people are going to need that water because there's no safe tap water to drink, that's price gouging and that is illegal. And yet that happens across our economy all the time. And we've seen that in particular over the last couple of years as we've experienced the pandemic and have gone through these series of crises. And yet we don't point it out, right? And I think part of the reason this idea is not taken seriously, I think there's a couple of reasons. The first is that it doesn't accord with the traditional story of where inflation comes from. The traditional story of where inflation comes from is workers are super greedy. They're asking for higher wages. And so we end up with higher wages, which push up prices, which force people to ask for higher wages. And you end up with what economists call a wage price spiral. The other sort of factor in the sort of traditional story about where inflation comes from is too much public investment flooding the economy is just going to jack up prices. And the reality of the situation is that wasn't the case here, right? We have seen historic public investment and inflation's come down. We have seen a strong labor market. You know, we haven't had to put millions of people out of work in order to bring prices down. And so the textbook story of how inflation works is not really holding water in the moment. It's, it's not according with literally the reality that we're seeing in the data. And the truth of the matter is, there are vested interests for folks to want to vilify workers, to want to vilify big public investments, right? And to continue to perpetuate an environment where big corporations can hold power and hold money and earn windfall profits on the backs of consumers. So I think it's really important to know that this is a narrative that's mute and it's a narrative that is challenging sort of dominant stories about how inflation works. But the reason it has made a toehold, and I think more than a toehold at this point. I and mean, even the Wall Street Journal in December had a headline that said, outside profits help drive inflation, now consumers are pushing back. The reason it's it sort of gotten its feet on the ground is because 
the experience of people across the economy, right? Like this is exactly how people are experiencing the economy. And it's the truth of the matter. And I think that is really what certainly my work is always trying to do is like, let's get to how people are experiencing the economy and speak to their concerns because people know it's up. You don't need to tell them that big companies are exploiting them. They are very willing to believe it because it's how they've interacted with the economy for years. Well, I have to say, you know, the idea that there's a abstraction that I'm supposed to pay obeisance to and it's going to keep wages down and public investment down, you know, but somehow I'm still supposed to be for it is kind of strange to me, the idea that I'm supposed to be so opposed to inflation that I'm supposed to be against higher wages for workers and I'm supposed to be against more public investment. It just shows how far we've gone in fealty to an abstraction, essentially, in terms of economic understanding. I find it I find it very odd to have folks saying, oh, I don't want upward pressure on wages because somehow that's going to be bad for me ultimately down the road. It seems to me a, a kind of distortion of our understanding of the way an economy should work and who it should serve. Right. I mean, we are the economy. That's kind of what we're always saying at Groundwork, that – we are the people, the regular people are the people who are the economy. And it's our well-being that reflects whether the economy is doing well. And I also think it's important in conversations about inflation. I think we pay attention to prices and cost of living and affordability in a moment of crisis. Right. But the, the truth of the matter is that the high prices that people have been feeling, you know, in their household budget long predate this particular inflationary moment, right? The cost of childcare, the cost of healthcare, the cost of housing, the cost of education. I mean, all of these things go beyond what we're experiencing in this particular moment. They have been burdens on people for decades. And there are also structural factors that are kind of perpetuating these burdens. So I think housing costs are a really good example. Housing costs are up about 21%. And we have this long-standing shortage of affordable and high-quality housing in this country. There have been instances over the course of the last couple of years where we've seen big home builders and landlords celebrating inflation as a way to restrict housing supply. Literally had a home builder say, we could build a thousand more houses, but we're not going to because it's going to help us restrict supply and therefore jack up the prices of the homes we can build. We've also seen landlords really celebrating inflation as a way to sort of skim off a little bit more off the top by raising rents a little bit higher. So all of that is certainly happening. But we also need to pay attention to broader macroeconomic forces in perpetuating this housing crisis, right? So one of the best ways, kind of a no-brainer, of addressing a housing supply shortage is to build more houses. But the Federal Reserve, since we last spoke, has embarked on an interest rate hiking rampage. What does that do? Sky-high interest rates crush new housing construction because it's finding its private investment, and it pushes potential buyers because of high mortgage rates back into the rental market, which pushes rents up, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So the Federal Reserve, it says we're raising interest rates through this theory and this channel that we think works, which, by the way, doesn't because we, again, as I mentioned, we haven't necessarily seen mass unemployment in order to bring down prices. But they're saying we're, we're trying to bring down prices, guys. We're trying to bring down prices by raising interest rates. But really what they're doing is making the problem worse. And they're perpetuating this cost of living crisis that long predates the pandemic. And so 
it's really important, I think, to also call out big institutional actors like Chair Powell to lower rates immediately, given that it's clear from the data that his rate hikes haven't had the intended effect and are actually making the problem worse. Well, one of the latest reports from Groundwork is called What's Driving the Rise in Grocery Prices and What the Government Can Do About It. So let me ask you finally, and it's a lot, but, you know, what can government do about the problems that we're talking about? I think it's actually we're living in kind of an exciting time, right, Uh, when it comes to an expansiveness in the policy tools that folks are thinking about and using in order to bring down prices. We're not in the you know, your 1970s inflationary world where we're just hoping that the Federal Reserve does its job and hoping for the best, like they've sort of been discredited. And again, you know, it's time to bring down interest rates. But we've seen President Biden and his administration really taking the issue of profiteering seriously. I mean, just last month, he said that, you know, to any corporation that has not brought their prices back down, even as inflation has come down, even as supply chains have been rebuilt, it's time to stop the price gouging. I mean, to have that come from the president, to call out the big corporate actors who are taking advantage of people and and lining their coffers is remarkable. And I think it's not just words, right? The administration has taken some really early actions, um, promoting competition and really concentrated markets like meatpacking, a a sector that is really driving grocery price inflation right now. Agencies like the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is going hard after junk fees. Those are the sort of when you check into a hotel, it's a resort fee, this fee, mm-hmm. that fee. Mm-hmm. And like, you never know, really know what you're paying for. And the truth is, you're just paying for these companies to get richer, right? So that and in banking, you know, overdraft fees. The CFPB has been going hard after junk fees. The FTC and the DOJ are aggressively using their authority to crack down on the concentration that allows these companies to get away with jacking prices up on consumers. And so I think what we need to see is a continuation of that. Look at anti-competitive mergers, especially throughout the food industry, but other industries where they're producing essentials to make sure that these environments that facilitate and breed both profiteering and tacit collusion are not allowed to be created. Finalize regulations that improve fairness, competition and resiliency and supply chains. And then the last policy idea here was it feels a little bit unrelated, but it's actually one and the same is we have a big opportunity to tackle the whole problem of high prices coming up because many of the provisions of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the 2017 Trump tax cuts, are expiring at the end of 2025. And one of the best ways to tax excess profits is simply to raise the corporate tax rate. That's it. It's a pretty easy policy and one that people understand and can get behind. Thank you very much. We've been speaking with Rakin Maboud, Chief Economist and Managing Director of Policy and Research at Groundwork Collaborative, online at groundworkcollaborative.org. Thank you so much, Rakin Maboud, for speaking with us this week on Counterspin. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a, such a pleasure. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced at FAIR, the Media Watch Group, based in New York. You can find out more information about FAIR at FAIR.org. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.